If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, verse 23 of chapter 5. 5.23, which reads as such, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May your spirit and soul and body be conserved or preserved complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask simply that you would open up our hearts and minds and speak to us of your truth, God, and we thank you for your loving kindness and mercy upon us, but Lord, we desire to hear you truth through the word. Therefore, let your Holy Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are your children, that you have chosen us, that you have given us salvation even though we don't deserve it, but, Father, out of your grace and mercy and your loving kindness, which knows no end, you have blessed us with so great a salvation. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this opportunity to worship him in spirit and in truth this very day. Minister to us, Lord, by the witness of your Spirit with ours, that we might grow to be more like Jesus day by day, that we might exhibit a biblical mindset and worldview, Lord, knowing the mind of Christ, so that Christ in us, the hope of glory, will be glorified. In his precious name we pray and ask these things. Amen. It was a challenge this last couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, as I had this opportunity to work on this sermon, uh, I actually started the very Monday after uh, Sunday before last, and got to work on it because I realized as we divided this last series into two parts instead of one. We we're going to talk originally about uh, biology and psychology together and realized very quickly that that was not going to be possible in any way, shape, fashion. And so therefore we decided to, to get it into two parts. Now next Sunday we'll talk about sociology and politics. But this Sunday we're going to focus on psychology. As a matter of fact, the very title of the sermon is that this is how a biblical worldview impacts the way we view the human mind and the nature of man. But let's just go back to one time as we start with every single time I've done the sermon. Let's understand what a worldview is. And that is, it refers to any ideology or philosophy or theology or movement that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. And that comes again from David Noble's book, Understanding the Times, the Religious Worldviews of Our Day and Search for Truth. I had the privilege of getting to uh, hear David Noble in person at a Worldview Weekend conference that was held in Milwaukee about three years ago. And it was interesting to hear him speak because he's a very knowledgeable man. As a matter of fact, he does training and has been doing it for decades in equipping Christians with a biblical worldview. And, uh, and so he speaks with a great deal of authority when we talk about these disciplines. And that's why I have no uh, uh, hesitation whatsoever to 
quote from him and let, let him serve as the guide in helping shape this whole series. But I just wanted to uh, remind us, as we look upon the ten categories that make a worldview, that psychology basically is the study of the soul, mind, and spirit of man. It asks the question, what about human nature? Why are we like we are? What is it? And psychology is the study, and that's what ology means, and anything, the ology, the study of what, why man is what he is. The key idea to this whole thing is that man has a, has a real guilt feelings about his rebellion against God, so that he must reconcile himself with God, or he must face unresolved personal problems. And as I mentioned in the first service, I don't know whether you have known some people like I have, but I've known people who had unresolved personal problems because they had been presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of the scriptures, and they had chosen not to believe it. They had either procrastinated or they had put off or had just simply refused to do the things necessary to put their trust and faith in Christ and let God take care of his problems. We'll talk later about that as it, as, as it relates to how we bear the guilt that we have against the, our rebellion against God. But we know people with unresolved mental problems. The world has one view as how you resolve that. The Bible has another. And we're going to talk in great detail about that this morning. Let's talk next about the basic nature of man. What is the basic nature of man? And again, I quote from Dr. David Nobles. With his emphasis on the spiritual and its understanding of man's fallen conditions. And by the way, just look at Romans chapters 1 and 2, if you have any questions what that is. Only Christianity can truly address the innermost concerns of the individual. Christian psychology helps people get in touch with their real selves because it allows them to recognize their own sinfulness and consequently their need for a Savior. Our greatest need is not self-esteem. Rather, it is the realization that we're all sinners in rebellion against God. As one Christian writer has put it, we're not okay. You've heard the psychological term, I'm okay, you're okay. Well, the fact is, we're not okay. We're sinners in need of a Savior. So rather than demanding that the individual ignore his conscience, he needs to trust in Christ who calls him to realize that his guilt is real, then face his guilt and repent and be saved. Biblical Christianity teaches moral responsibilities, whereas secular humanism and Marxist-Leninism blame human failings on societies and the environment. And it's quite a bit different than how God has seen our sins and our rebellion. Let's just simply define psychology. And looking at a definition from the dictionaries, and Carter Dictionary Online says it's the scientific study of the human mind and mental statues of human and animal behavior. And then Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines it as the science of mind and behavior, the mental or behavioral characteristics of an individual or group. Key word there is behavior in a lot of ways, and we'll see that later on. Let's look at the basic, simple definition because it comes from the word psyche, the Greek word psyche, which means soul in every sense of the word, soul. We'll talk later about what that means in greater detail. 
but psychology essentially is the study of the soul. The scriptures suggest when they mention body, soul, mind, heart, and spirit, that there's a dualistic ontology. An ontology is a branch of metaphysics that studies the nature of existence or the nature of our being, if you will. And the nature of our being is that there is a dualistic ontology. There is more than just our physical bodies and our physical presence. There is something spiritual about us as well. That's uh, the two fundamental realities of, of, our, of our being, if you will. That we have a physical nature and a spiritual nature. And by the way, since that's a scriptural point of view, as you might suspect from the secular humanist point of view, it's quite something different. The next graph or illustration, I, I saw many years ago, probably 40 years ago, and it helped me make sense of things better than anything else I've ever seen. As a matter of fact, I've, I've looked at great detail in this with, uh, with some of Ro Watchman Nee's writings. It speaks about the fact that we have a physical reality, that's our body. Inside this body of mine is a soul. And that's the inner circle, if you will. Not the most inner circle, but the next one out from the body. The soul consists of my mind, that's my intellect, by which I think, it consists of my emotions, that's how I feel. It consists of my will, my ability to decide whether or not, as Adam and Eve did, whether or not I'm going to obey God, or whether I'm going to do certain things when I want to do them. The evidence in support of that came from that scripture that I read to you earlier this morning, where Paul says, let may your spirit and soul and body be conserved complete. The, tri uh, the trichotomy of man is like looking at three basic elements, our body, our soul, but there's more than that. There's the spirit, the spirit of man. And the next slide will show a little bit more about that in detail, but the spirit of man really is the innermost being of man. That's our heart of hearts. The Bible refers to that in the Old Testament uh, there is one word that's used to describe the mind, but in the New Testament, when we talk about the heart of man, we're talking about that Greek word cardia, which cardiac comes from, if you will. There is another thing I think that uh, I read from Watchman Nee, which made great sense to me. And by means of the body, man becomes world conscious, conscious of his surroundings in our worldly environment. By that we mean that we have the senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch, the five senses. That's our world consciousness, and we experience that as a consequence of our body. But there also is a self-consciousness which comes from the soul. And that means, essentially, it's capable of, we're capable of thinking and reasoning with our mind, of loving and hating, if you will, with our emotions of either desiring or rejecting with our will. Those, that's our self-consciousness. And then there is our God-consciousness, which comes from our innermost being, the spirit of man, the heart of hearts. And that is our ability to worship and commune with God, to believe in him. The way I look at it is, 
It's like Ephesians, 1, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Before they knew Jesus Christ, they were dead in their trespasses and sin. And what he meant by this is that the spirit of man was dead until the spirit of God came and regenerated that spirit and lived within us. The spirit of man was dead. And then came God's Spirit and regenerated it, and the Spirit of God indwells us. And he indwells us in our heart, in our spirit, our innermost being. The next one is a much similar thing, just pointing out some of the differences here. Because if you look at the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the heart of man, it means literally, it's called lab or labab. It means the inner man, the mind the will, the heart. It is used all by that one Hebrew word, leb, L-E-B, if you translate it into or transliterate it into English. It says in Job 38:36, he says, Who has put wisdom in the innermost being, or had given understanding to the mind? It also says in Psalms 51:6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in your hidden part, you will make me no wisdom. In Proverbs 20, 27, it says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching the inner, all the innermost being of his heart. That is how it's used in the Old Testament, the soul of man. In the New Testament, it talks about the innermost being. Out of our, out of our innermost being will be poured living waters. And basically, it's saying, transliterated, the inner inward parts, the belly of man in the old King James, that's how it's translated, about out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. But the way that secular psychology views man is quite different. He doesn't look upon anything as, as dualistic. In other words, it's just the physical being. It says here, since there is no supernatural... There must be only one basic and fundamental reality. This is monism. To further explain that, psychological monism believes that, there, that the mind and the body exist as part of the same entity. There is no difference. In other words, the mind really is the brain. It's our physical being and nothing else. There is no spiritual aspect to us. No spiritual part. No no soul, if you will, outside of what exists in this thing called the mind that is resident in the brain, where we think. It also says, since humans are the byproduct of evolution, secular psychologists are left with a study of only material things, the brain, environmental stimuli, and how humans respond or, or behave with respect to that stimuli. So that is all it is from a psychological viewpoint in the humanist, from the humanist perspective. Only the physical aspect of us exists. And after this body dies, there's nothing. It's gone. As a matter of fact, if you look over at the next slide, the Human Manifesto, and I, I went in, and by the way, I downloaded this, and I put it in some of my reference materials. I cut and paste. This is the Human Manifesto One that was written in 1933, which was intended to become the religion of the world. And remember, this was signed just 
briefly after Hitler was uh, made Chancellor of Germany in January 30th, 1933. It holds a couple of tenets that relate to psychology, and I've copied them here. The third tenet says, holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. There's only man in his physical being. There is nothing besides that. And after this physical being passes on, that is it. The eighth tenet says, religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist social passion. There's only the here and now. There's nothing else. Manifesto 2, in its second tenet, goes on to say, the promises of immortal salvation, our fear of eternal damnation, are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and we'll talk about that later, and from rectifying social injustices. Modern science discredits such historic concepts as the ghost in the machine and the separable soul. And by the way, what it's talking about there is the spirit of man, the soul of man. It rejects that. Rather, science confirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. As far as we know, a total personality is a function of the biological organisms transacting in a social and cultural context. That's it. There is no creditable evidence that life survives death in the body. That's how secular humanism views it from Manifestos 1 and 2. There also is, and I'm getting quoting from David Noble, the good self versus evil society. You have to have an explanation. Where did evil come from? What's happened here? Because secular humanists make three assumptions about the self, about the mind, and mental processes. Their first assumption is this. We are good by nature, and therefore perfectible. We can be perfected. We can be educated to the extent that we become nearly perfect in ever since the world. All you've got to do is just educate man enough and breed him well enough, this is eugenics, that basically you'll end up with a human specimen who's just nearly perfect in ever since the world. That's the philosophy of secular humanism. Secondly, society and its social institutions are responsible for the evil that man does. And thirdly, mental health can be restored to those who get in touch with their inner or good self. That's why you're okay, I'm okay. But basically, what does the Bible tell us? There are none righteous, no, not one. If you look at Romans 3.10, society and its institutions are not responsible for evil. Man is. We only need to look at the Second World War for the perfect examples of that. And we need to get in touch with God not with the inner self, not with the good self, because there's no such thing as the good self. First of all, from Adam's race, we rebelled against God. We said we want to be God. We believed, Adam and Eve believed what Satan told them. They believed the lie and therefore threw away the perfect thing that they had in God's creation. There's a man by the name of Abraham Maslow, who is an American psychologist and he has been the author of what they call Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. 
It's a great pyramid, and it was an illustration on the web that I saw yesterday in a multicolored pyramid. At the top was this thing called self-actualization. It's a very popular theory. I thought Maslow said two things of significance. He says, as far as I know, we just don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. I find that an incredible statement. Uh, he died, by the way, in 1970. So he was a witness to the events of the Second World War. And he was born in 1808, so he probably even remembered some of the events from the First World War. But the fact is, it's hard to imagine a man making that statement if he had a lick of common sense, as we say down south. But the fact he did say that he thought man was intrinsically not evil. He also said, it is as if Freud supplied us the sick half of psychology... And we must now fill, in, fill it out with the healthy half. And he, in his theory of self-actualization, really theorized that man could reach a level of self-actualization. If you look at the pyramid, the very basic level has to do with man's need for food and shelter. That kind of thing. Very basic, basic needs for protection. Those were the very basic needs. And then it comes to the very top where man achieves the highest levels of thinking and achievement, uh, really realizing what he is actually capable of in every sense of the word. That's the self-actualization concept. It's a very humanistic concept. So that every person, it, it theorizes, every person is built with this desire to do this. And I would dare venture to say that probably every one of us in this room have met some people who had no intent whatsoever to, to realize or to actualize all these grand and glorious things. They just did not have that desire. But by, by the secular humanist mind and mindset, there's ways that can be done to improve man's lot such that we'll get him to think this way. It was interesting that one of, uh, and, and by the way, Maslow was a professor of psychology at Brandeis University, and one of his friends on staff there warned him that his inability to account for the presence of evil in the world was a potential fatal flaw in his attempt to construct, construct a religion of self. So it's interesting to note that even his colleagues realized that this whole thing with self-actualization had some real serious conceptual uh, flaws. Another secular humanist conclusions were stated here, I'm reading to you here, from a fellow by the name of Wendell W. Waters, who said, the Christian is brainwashed to believe that he or she was born wicked, should suffer as Christ suffered, and should aspire to a humanly impossible level of perfection nonetheless. A true Christian must always be in a state of torment, since he or she can never really be certain that God has forgiven him or her. And by the way, he was the author of a book called Deadly Doctrine in which he accuses Christianity essentially of being the cause of antisocial behavior, sexual dysfunction, poor psychological tr uh, development, anxiety, and even major psychi psychiatric uh, illnesses. Another well-known name of secular psychology, fellow by the name of Eric Fromm, made this comment about the Bible. And he said, the Christian interpretation of the study of man's act of disobedience as his fall has obscured the clear meaning of the story. The biblical text does not even mention the word sin. 
Man challenges the supreme power of God, and he is able to challenge it because he is potentially God. Remember what Satan said to Eve? If you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. Did he tell her that? Wasn't that the lie that he presented from the very first lie to mankind? You'll become like God. And this is the same lie that's being perpetrated even today. Another perspective is one from a Christian psychologist by the name of William Kirk Kirkpatrick. And Kirkpatrick says this, if you're talking, or you're talking about Christianity, it is much truer to say that psychology and religion are competing faiths. If you seriously hold to one set of values, you will logically have to reject the other. If you seriously hold to one set of values, be it biblical values, or be it the values of the world, you're going to have to hold one and reject the other. You can't stand on the middle ground. Um, Kilpatrick wrote a couple of interesting books. In 1983, he wrote Psychological Deduction, Seduction, The Failure of Modern Psychology, and in 1985, he wrote The Emperor's New Clothes, The Naked Truth About the New Psychology. I wish I had time to have read his books because he seems like a very insightful man in every sense of the word in helping us understand the difference between Christian psychology and secular psychology. And this next visual points that out. Because it tells us, first of all, that Christian psychology acknowledges the sinfulness of man. That's a very root thing, a very elementary, fundamental thing that we must do is understand the sinfulness of man. The Bible tells us, as a matter of fact, in Romans, that there's none righteous, no, not one. Not one. In comparison to a holy and perfect God, we are sinful creatures, because Adam chose his own thing. He did his own thing. He rebelled against God. Understanding the sinfulness of man is critical to understanding our own sinful nature and the mental processes. We can't come to grips with reality, I think, to, first of all, we understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's the most elementary thing that we can understand. As a matter of fact, the very initial work of God's Holy Spirit is to awaken man to the fact that he is a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the first mission of the Holy Spirit. You and I will never come to a saving knowledge of God, Christ Jesus, unless we come to that knowledge, unless we are awakened to that fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The great benefit of the doctrine of sin is that it reintroduces responsibility for our own behavior, especially for changing, or for changing as well as giving meaning, giving meaning to our condition. That was a quote from a fellow by the name of Paul Bitts, who was the professor emeritus of psychology at New York University, he began his life as a young student, as an atheist, until he found the truth in God's Word. He's the author of a book called Psychology as Religion, the Cult of Self-Worship, which deals with a lot of the problems that we face in our society today. The Christian psychology's view on human nature and sin is important for us to understand. It says the Christian position goes on to define mankind's failure as inherently evil. 
because of the decision to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. Man is inherently evil. We are not perfectible. We are not without guilt. We are not perfect in any sense of the word. If the Christian view of the nature of mankind is correct, then only Christianity can develop a true and meaningful and workable psychology. If the Christian truth is indeed true, then only that can happen. The Christian psychology sees man as not only physical, but also spiritual, as morally responsible before God, as created in God's image, and as having rebelliously turned away from his creator, and thus he is a sinner in need of a savior. Only Christianity is really prepared to face the problem that necessarily arise out of man's sin, his guilt. And that, the blood of Christ, takes away his guilt. Christian psychology's view on guilt, therefore, it says since man has rebelled against God, he has real guilt feelings about his sin and must reconcile himself with God or face unresolved mental problems. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul encourages the church at Corinth and its, its people, he says, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. And James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. If we violate one of the commandments of God, we're guilty as if we did all of them. So guilt is a reality. Guilt is something we have to deal with. And it is by the grace of God that we've been given a way to deal with guilt. Because by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, he was able to save us from our sins. How about the Christian psychology's view on mental illness? Because if there's one thing you hear about in secular psychology... It's this uh, pervasive understanding that mental illness is responsible for so much of mankind's problems. It says, whereas secular psychologists speak of mental illnesses, many Christian psychologists deny the existence of a large part of them other than those that are caused by such organic malfunctions as brain damage, tumors, gene inheritance, granular or chemical disorders. A lot that Christian psychology says that the secular psychology classifies as mental illness is not recognized as such. As a matter of fact, the problem, the root problem, is the sin, the sinfulness of man. Jay Adams, who wrote the books on counseling, especially competent counseling that was published, um, he's written over 100 books, by the way, but this one was published back in 1986 by Zonervan, and he, in this, he says this, the fundamental bent of fallen human nature is away from God. That's man's inclination, is to depart from God. Apart from organically generated difficulties, the mentally ill are really people with unresolved personal problems. Unresolved personal problems. I mentioned a while ago that probably all of us here have known people who utterly refused to acknowledge God. They refused to admit that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They could not bear the guilt because, I'm, I'm sorry, but ever since Adam sinned, that guilt has been prevalent in the world. And the guilt is only removed, as it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we were introduced by grace through faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And so therefore we know that we have peace with God because Christ has intervened and substituted his death for us that we might live. How about the realistic approach to sin and guilt? Only the Bible really has this because it says Christian psychology tells us that we have to, first of all, take responsibility for our sins. Think about what it says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. And the prophet said, Come, come now, let us reason together. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Come now, let us reason together. God calls us to reason. He calls us to understand the fact that he is God, holy in every way, and we are sinful man. We are in need of a Savior. We are in need of redemption, and this is why Christ died for us. In James 5.16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The, effectual, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I mentioned doing the first service, and I never intended to do this, but I felt led to do so. Because right now I'm writing one of my doctrinal papers I have to write for ordination is on Christ our healer. And it's already built around James chapter 5. That if there are sick among you, it says, call for the elders of the church so that they might anoint him, her, and that they might pray over them and that they might be healed. But here in verse 16 of chapter 5, it tells us something else. It says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And I'm not trying to give an all-purpose answer by any stretch of the imagination, but I think one of the reasons why, many times we come, we have people come, and we anoint them with oil, as it instructs us to do, and the elders of the church pray over them, and nothing happens. Why? Why? As a matter of fact, I've been, I've been struggling with this question in the writing of that paper for several weeks. The reason being other than the fact that God's sovereign will would be that it not take place, or that God's sovereign will is that this is a sickness unto death. The fact is, I think that why we don't see healing sometimes when we claim the scripture, and I think that scripture is applicable for us today in the 21st century as it was in the latter part of the 1st century when the Apostle James wrote it. The fact is, is that we don't confess our sins to one another. We come and we ask for healing and anointing and prayer by the elders and nothing happens because we haven't confessed any sin. I'm going to tell you what, I think confessing our sins to one another is the single most difficult thing sometimes that we could possibly do. It is very difficult. It's not pleasant. I've often thought (laughs) having a couple of things called heart disease, sleep apnea, and type 2 diabetes that maybe ought to come for the elders. And I've struggled with the demand for that because I, have, I, have, I believe in my heart that if I do that, 
I have to do this. That if I come and ask for healing, I need to confess my sins. And I, don't, I look with great trepidation on doing that. I'll tell you right now. I look with great difficulty in doing that. But that's just an aside uh, to what I'm preaching about this morning. The fact is, it tells us in James, or pardon me, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, understanding, facing up to the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior, in need of forgiveness, so that our guilt might be removed and that we might be at peace with God in every sense of the word, in our heart, mind, and soul. Let's talk about the Christian's view of, on the Christian psychology's view about suffering. Finding meaning in suffering is a unique feature to Christian psychology. Because I'm going to tell you what, secular psychology has a hard time dealing with suffering. Tries to explain it away, tries to transfer blame perhaps to some other thing, but the fact is that it has a difficult time. But with Christian psychology, we face squarely the fact that it says in Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's the most difficult, as I heard one pastor say, that's the single most difficult passage of Scripture in the Bible. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God because, it says, we exalt in that hope of the glory of God, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, that's the Christian perspective on suffering. Quite different. As you read there, that last part of the visual, it says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As it tells us in Hebrews. In closing, let's talk a little bit about the society and then the individual. The Christian psychological viewpoint is that society, as a result, uh, the Christian views society as a result of individuals' actions. That is, individuals are understood to be responsible for the evils of society. The worldview stands in direct contrast to the Marxist-Leninist, secular humanist view that says man is corrupted by evil societies. Think back again to World War II and before it even began. One man, one man, by the name of Adolf Hitler, changed the society. There's no other way to look at it, I'm sorry. He was one of nine men who in 1923 went to a meeting as a spy so that he could hear what they were saying and talking about. He went as a spy, he liked what he heard, and within a few months had taken over control 
of that original nine people that met. And from that whole thing began the movement of National Socialism in Germany. You know what it grew out to be. One man changed the society. Now, some people would say, well, look about his, his youth, how he was changed by society. No. No, he had a choice. And he, choose, he chose to believe that the root problem of all society were the Jews. And so he developed a hatred and animosity against them such as the world has never seen, which resulted in millions of deaths as a consequence of one man's warped thinking, raised a Catholic, brought up in a Catholic school, came to all the wrong conclusions about life. And you and I, in our lifetime, have seen the consequences of that evil thinking. So man has a responsibility. The worldview of secular humanism and Marxism-Leninism and a lot of other isms says that it's society that's evil and it is the one that's corrupted man. Christian understands that individuals must change before a society can get any better. Need we look only at our day and age? You think this has come about? Did just society corrupted itself by osmosis? It just happened by accident? No. Men and women, individuals, chose to disobey God, to not heed the warnings of Scripture, to choose a worldview that was anything but in alignment with God's truth, and as a consequence, we see what we've got. And the only way it's going to change is by one means and one means alone. It's going to start with individual changes of the heart. As God's Holy Spirit moves mightily upon this land to, first of all, revive the church, which is in desperate need of revival, and secondly, to have a great spiritual awakening in which millions of men and women can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it's going to be transformed. Or else the trend line of our day and age of this society is one that goes straight to hell. There's no other place that its destination is headed except there. So consequently, we need to understand that it is by the changing of individual hearts that God is able to transform our society. Let me just say this in conclusion. I'd like to quote Francis Schaeffer. He was a great Christian theologian. He said this, as a Christian, instead of putting myself in practice as the center of the universe, think about what he's saying there. I must do something else. This is not only right, and the failure to do so is not only sin, but it is important for me personally in this life. I must think after God, and I must will after God. In essence, what Francis Schaeffer was saying is, I need a biblical worldview. I need to look at this world as God sees it. I need to look at myself as God sees me, a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I have done nothing, but God in his infinite grace and mercy has reached down and saved me. He knew me before the foundation of the world was laid. He knew you and I, none of us excluded. He knew that we would be, and he's called us to salvation in Christ Jesus. 
Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm going to tell you, if there's something that differentiates Christian psychology from secular psychology, it's that. That verse of scripture that I just read. There's a lot more than that, obviously. But thinking of someone else but ourselves. As Francis Schaeffer said, I need to get over this thing that it's all about me. It's all about me. We're so self-absorbed in this society today. This is part of what was written about the personality, the cult of personality. I should say, as one of the psychologists I had mentioned earlier this this morning. The fact is, we need to get over that. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ. There's a great gap of difference between the worldview of Christian psychology, which uses the study of the soul and the mind to understand man better than that of secular psychology, which claims that This is it. This physical reality. I live, I have a brain, I use that brain, it's stimulated by my environment and all the people I know and the society in which I live, and I make my decisions in that, and after I'm gone and dead, that's it. I no longer exist. What a hopeless, pathetic, atheistic point of view. That's what it all amounts to. Can we not do better? The biblical worldview puts us on the right path of thinking. It helps straighten out the soul. It helps enrich the mind and direct the mind. And by the way, as we were mentioning before, when we were looking at that graph or that chart about the body of man, the soul of man, the spirit of man, it's when man's spirit is regenerated by the Holy Spirit that the spirit, the innermost being, with the Holy Spirit infilling us and indwelling us, that it becomes what directs our lives instead of the things of the mind. It's easy to be directed by the emotions or by will that's warped and, and burdened by sin or by a mind that has not been enriched in Christ Jesus and has not been transformed. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And be not transformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what your good and acceptable and will of service is all about. That's what it's all about this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you for your regenerating work in us through your Holy Spirit. For your spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are your children. That we can rest assured that the death of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, has worked for us so wonderful a salvation. Father, thank you for all that gift that you've given us. Lord, bear witness with our heart and mind that we might think on these things. Father, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in your will. Help us in our daily task to be mindful of this and to constantly give thanks. That is, by the way, the fruit of lips that give thanks to your name, the sacrifice of praise. 
Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.